the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The Innovators Network. Welcome to the Heart of Innovation. 60 minutes that can save life and limb with new breakthrough ideas and innovation changing the healthcare landscape. Brought to you by patient advocacy group, thewaytomyheart.org. In partnership with Cardiovascular System Incorporated's patient advocacy campaign, Take a Stand Against Amputation. Here are your hosts for the Heart of Innovation, Emmy Award-winning journalist and founder of The Way to My Heart, Kim McNicholas, and interventional cardiologist and founder of the Save My Piggies Health Education Series, Dr. John Phillips. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the show. We're taking today's show in just a little bit of a different direction. It's the heart of innovation. Normally, we talk about vascular diseases, but... We're going to do a little bit of a spin on it because still vascular disease is represented. It's actually the executive director of the Society of Vascular Surgery Surgery that we're actually going to be interviewing about a different foundation that he and his wife created to help save their son who has a rare genetic disorder. And we're going to get into that in just a moment. Oh, it's such a great story. Very inspiring. Leaving you with a cliffhanger and welcoming my co-host, Dr. John Phillips, who is going to be sharing some inspiration with us before we get into today's topic. Hi, John. Hello, Kimberly. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. A little rainy out here in sunny California. In fact, there are floods and there's lots of snow. So different than the drought that we've had the past few years. I almost walked outside and said, what, what, what is that wet stuff? <laughs> well, you know, interestingly, it's misting here in Columbus, but it's about 38 degrees. So that makes it just really uncomfortable, uh, honestly, when it's kind of cold, but not cold enough to snow. And there's a lot of moisture in the air. It just it's one of those days where you just kind of want to stay inside. So I'm glad to be here with you. And I'm really excited um, to uh, have this interview. It sounds like um, the the topic is going to, I, th- I think, inspire a lot of people. So I'm hopeful that um, that uh, we, we can kind of squeeze all the juice out of this orange in the 40-plus minutes that we have. I think we'll need a few hours for this one because you're just going to be sitting there with your jaw just dropped. It's, it's so inspiring. And speaking of inspiring, do you have a moment of inspiration to kick things off? Dr. John Phillips, spectacular, vascular moment of inspiration. Well, it fires me up every single time. I love that. It does. And you know what? We have always have to thank Mike, producer Mike, for, for pulling that together for us. So this show today, I think, is kind of interesting because this past week I came across a book that I had downloaded a few years ago, and it's called Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. I think everybody should read it or listen to it. And 
I think it dovetails nicely into the story that the Shaws are going to tell us about their son and, and the foundation that they started for his medical um, illness. And so the kind of the, the, the nuts and bolts of the, the book is Frankel was a prisoner in the Nazi concentration camps in World War II. He's also a psychiatrist, and, and through his experience, he survived the, the concentration camp, and through his experience, he founded a kind of new psychotherapeutic method, trying to find meaning in life when there is potentially no meaning left at all. And he's got a lot of quotes in here, but I think this quote is, is germane to the, to the conversation that we're going to have. And so he's quoted as saying, when we are no longer able to change the situation, we are challenged to change ourselves. And this whole notion of having an attitude and the ability to have that attitude as your final freedom in, in choice when the, you may you may feel like you have no other choices. And we talk about this a lot with our, our patients who suffer from PAD and other medical issues that they feel there's all this suffering, but there is meaning in the suffering. And it's it's having a positive attitude and, and making those positive choices. So with that, I, I've digressed a little bit. But again, great book to to read, quick read. Uh, and I recommend it to anyone who's who's kind of looking for that stoic mentality. Yeah, that sounds incredibly powerful. It's about creating the change that you want to see in order to create that that meaning that you want to feel and you want to have, right? And I well, think that yeah. that's... Go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I mean, because like everything, every action we choose, so it's a choice. I think all your actions are choices and, and your attitude in any given circumstance or situation can that is that's that's freedom there and that can dictate whether it's a positive or negative um experience yeah no i agree that it it can be a choice and it it starts with the choice and how you want to feel about something right it's so disempowering to think that you don't have choices to feel as though you're you're the victim of, of something that's not empowering at all what is empowering is to say what can i control what can i create what can i do what choices can i make and and i think that that's what um ken slaw and his wife ann slaw um both felt like i mean to think that your son has this rare genetic disorder and most kids don't live very long and why would you want to settle for that? You have this beautiful child and you want to see them grow into adulthood. And instead of sitting back and settling for that, that feeling of being a victim and and what can't be done, how do you get into that state of mind and figure out, no, wait, what can, can be done? What can we create to get it done to help our son thrive? And with that, I want to welcome them to the show. Hi, Ken. Hi, Anne. Hello. Hi, Kim. And I'm sure that you both, that that quote that that John shared with us probably hits home for you both. Uh, Definitely hits home. And um, I I really want to emphasize that while we're going to talk about our story with with Andrew, really the message here for your audience uh, is is really about uh, building hope and aspiration and and really um as you mentioned kim the the choice that we all have to number one 
learn and know everything that there is to know about the situation we're in so that we can understand context and what our range of options and choices are. And then secondly, you know, once you understand a little bit more about what is known and not known, given your current situation, you can start to map your way forward one small step at a time toward a more positive goal. And that's the key. It's not to try to jump to the end uh, all at once, but to take it a step at a time uh, and let kind of momentum and knowledge build. And, you know, uh, I think the story that that we have uh, with Andrew, uh, our son, is, is a story that uh, thousands of parents also experience in this country, uh, in the world. Um, you're, <clears throat> you have a beautiful child, as you, you said, Kim. Um, uh, his uh, birth was uh, an exciting journey um, it, in and of itself. Uh, so uh, for, for the audience to fill in a, a couple of examples, not to get too technical, but Andrew was born with a very rare neurological condition uh, called familial dysautonomia, where basically uh, because of a genetic defect, uh, Andrew had about half of the normal neurons controlling his autonomic nervous system, which is what controls your heart rate and your breathing and all of the automatic functions that are going on in your body. So imagine that your body has only half the battery power that it normally does to control all of the things that should be on autopilot. And so it's very common for these kids to have blood pressures that go up and down and are very, very poorly controlled. Um, and they have all kinds of other uh, neurological issues. And when Andrew was born in 1992, uh, you know, Ann and I both being uh, scientists of sorts, you know, of course, went to the literature to find out everything that we could uh, about this uh, condition. And it was pretty scary. The prognosis uh, for Andrew, the sort of the outcome for Andrew, was that most of these kids did not survive past six to 10 years of age. Wow. Uh, the gene was not yet discovered <clears throat> for this condition. Uh, you know, there were a couple of physicians and a couple of scientists that had started to, started to study it. The most famous being uh, at the University of uh, Colorado, Denver. Uh, this condition, before it was called familial dysautonomia, was called Riley Day syndrome, named after the two scientists that first took an interest um, in in the condition. So when Ann and I, you know, were struggling to figure out what was going on with Andrew and why he was having so much of the difficulty that he was having, we discovered the literature on Riley Day Syndrome. And that's really our, how our journey began in terms of understanding what his prognosis and his trajectory would be. And that brought us to the first choice point as both uh, Dr. Phillips and yourself have pointed out. And for Ann and I to be told by our pediatrician and to be told by experts at that point, uh, we have to accept this 
uh, situation. Uh, there's really nothing we can do to change the prognosis of Andrew's disease or Andrew's life was just not acceptable to us. As parents, it was not acceptable to us as advocates for Andrew. Uh, and, and so we just dedicated ourselves then and there that we were gonna do everything that we could possibly do, muster all of the resources that we could muster together to try to change that story and try to change that trajectory. And that's really what launched us on the journey. So I uh, don't know, uh, Anne, if you wanna add anything in here at this point. Yeah. Yes, and we will get to Anne in just a moment right here on the Heart of Innovation. We're going to hear what sparked this diagnosis, what symptoms they discovered, and also hear what they're doing now to help kids around the world who also have this disorder. So stay with us. Leg health can indicate risk for heart attack, stroke, and amputation. If you have leg pain or cramps while walking, get checked for peripheral artery disease, or PAD. PAD is plaque buildup in mainly the leg arteries. Be sure to ask your physician for an ankle brachial index, also called an ABI test, where they use blood pressure cuffs to analyze the blood pressure in your legs. If they discover you have arterial plaque that's limiting blood flow to your feet, medicine and a regimented walking program are frontline treatment. If PAD is in its advanced stages, your physician may schedule a surgical intervention. Minimally invasive tools are available to remove plaque and restore blood flow, including cardiovascular system's Diamondback 360 atherectomy system, which sands away plaque that is a hard calcium. It's important to discuss all options with your physician, and if told you have no options, get a second opinion. Take a stand against amputation. For more information, go to standagainstamputation.com. That's standagainstamputation.com. Welcome back to The Heart of Innovation. For more on today's topic, go to theheartofinnovation.org. That's theheartofinnovation.org. Once again, here's Emmy Award-winning journalist Kim McNicholas and interventional cardiologist Dr. John Phillips. Welcome back, everybody. Thank you for joining us. We have just started our, I think, very inspiring conversation with the Slaw family, uh, Ken and Ann. And before we went to break, Ken was just laying the foundation about the the disease that uh, their son Andrew was diagnosed with called familial dysautonomia. And one of the things I love about doing this show, I learn something every time. I've, I've Maybe I heard about this in medical school, but I don't remember it. So, Ann, can you just share a little bit of, the, of, of your experience after Andrew was born, when you guys picked up that something wasn't right and, and you know, how you kind of navigated through the healthcare system with your pediatricians, um, I'm assuming pediatricians, to try to figure out what, what's wrong? Absolutely. Um, so when Andrew was born, uh, he came came to us with a couple of generic concerns. Um, your son appears low tone. Um, he seems kind of floppy. Um, his heart rate and, uh, his, well, his heart rate uh, during birth kept going up and down. Um, so there were some concerns there. The biggest thing that uh, came to all of our attention was uh, failure to suck. 
So here we were holding this um, five pound baby and he could not take in any liquid. Uh, we then had to learn very quickly how to do uh, NG feeds. So that's a tube down the nose. Um, that was a bit scary because they said if we couldn't learn, we couldn't take him home. Um, but if, if we screwed up, we could end up putting the tube into his lungs. So, you know, anxiety, of course, was, was going up, but we learned and we were able to take him home from the hospital about a week and a half later. Uh, was I remember that, did you have a diagnosis at that point? No. What did explain no. to you is the reason for it? Um, that's a good question. They just, what we were told uh, from the nurses was some babies are just born like this. Uh, they didn't seem too concerned. Um, the doctors just kind of just took each each thing and said, well, let's see how he does. There, there was really no diagnosis at that point. And, and to your point, um, John, yes, you probably did hear about familial dysautonomia in med school, but it was a footnote. And it was a footnote to everybody at the time. No, no, this was not on anybody's radar whatsoever. Uh, when Andrew, when we were able to bring him home, and we did the NG feedings, uh, it was clear that as we went to the pediatrician, um, there were these floppiness issues, occupational therapy, physical therapy, uh, some swallowing therapy uh, was suggested, but again, no diagnosis. Uh, this was our first child, so we did not really know what's considered normal. And we took each of these challenges as, okay, so he has a difficulty feeding. Well, let's see if we can, as he got a little older, let's see if we can thicken his formula. That seemed to help. So every time there was a challenge, we came up with some type of solution, you know, with the supports that were around him. Uh, he, as we continue to go to the pediatrician, and I kept a running list of all of our concerns, nothing seemed to come together. All of the, the symptoms were sort of scattered all over the place, and there didn't seem to be this overarching diagnosis. There was, he has this issue, he has that issue. Uh, each of those issues were being addressed individually, but there was no overarching uh, kind of diagnosis. So what was encouraging for all of us was that this little baby, eventually a toddler, was needing and sometimes exceeding some of his developmental milestones. He was behind in many things but he continued to make his own curve. And what the pediatrician told us is, as long as he's making developmental uh, improvements in his own way, we really, we really don't need a diagnosis. And in fact, if you take him to a neurological, you know, a, a neurologist, you might get some title or some diagnosis, but it's not gonna help. However, when Andrew was four, he got his fingers caught in a sliding glass door. And I remember 
grabbing my fingers and waiting for the big scream. Nothing came. There was no scream. And so we went back to the pediatrician and said, okay, we have these list of 14 kind of odd symptoms. You know, he blotches when he gets uh, eat sometimes, you know, some things that were on this list of about 14 things, but now we had 15. Failure to feel pain. That really raised the eyebrows of a pediatrician and said, it's time to see the neurologist. So did they think that, sorry to interrupt, but Please. I guess that that was kind of the the turning point, the lack of pain sensation? Yes. Okay. You know, I would just add that, you know, having worked in uh, with pediatricians for so long, that that is a fairly normal course, that pediatricians are very patient because sure. they, want, they want to give kids a chance to catch up. You know, kids get behind for lots of reasons in their developmental um in, in their development. And so they always like to give kids the benefit of the doubt of, of, a, of a little bit of extra time. Uh, but as Anne said, there, there were these symptoms like, you know, uh, Andrew, who is also himself a very happy baby and a very happy child, when we got him laughing, sometimes he laughed so hard he'd pass out, you know, and we thought, okay, that, that's not normal right like he would turn blue pass out and then he'd be fine right and so you know we started to, to have to modify our behavior like do not tell this kid anything too funny right because, <laughs> you know he has a risk There's of a sign right <laughs> right and so you have this sort of constellation you know which is and we our family loves to make people laugh right so we're a bunch of stand-up comedians in this family so you know, it, it's, and Andrew himself is a stand-up comedian, you know, and, and so, you know, laughter has always been a, a big part of, of our life. And so, you know, we, we've learned with Andrew to avoid extremes, right? And Not so laughter is leading to Andrew passing out. He's not feeling pain. You're on your way to the neuro, uh, neurospecialist and we're going to leave you right there on the heart of innovation. We're going to continue with this story next. Stay with us. Three years ago, my symptoms started with leg pain and leg cramps while walking. Me too, with a tightness in my calves. Well, do you know, my doctor thought that my leg cramps were a side effect of the statin he prescribed me. Well, my doctor just brushed them off as another symptom of old age. Mine thought the pain was radiating from my spine. My doctor blamed my neuropathy on diabetes until I got a wound on my foot that just wouldn't heal. Yeah, it turns out we all have peripheral artery disease, also known as PAD. It's plaque buildup mainly in the leg arteries causing poor circulation. For me, the diagnosis came too late and I lost my leg, but that does not have to happen to you. No, it does not, because there are treatment options available if you're diagnosed early enough. P.A.D. 
peripheral artery disease. If you've been experiencing leg pain, leg cramps, or neuropathy when walking, and your doctor isn't hearing you, we are. We are the way to my heart, the largest support network for peripheral artery disease patients. And we want to help you get back on your feet again. Visit our website at thewaytomyheart.org or call our LegSaver hotline, 415-320-7138. Your life and limb could depend on it. Welcome back to The Heart of Innovation. For more on today's topic, go to theheartofinnovation.org. That's theheartofinnovation.org. Once again, here's Emmy Award-winning journalist Kim McNicholas and interventional cardiologist Dr. John Phillips. Welcome back, everybody. So, Ken and Ann, you just started to kind of tell us the journey, the medical journey, I think, as it as it were, about Andrew, and, and you had all these symptoms that just were things that you noticed that weren't right developmentally, but then I guess what kind of really got y'all concerned was the the perceived lack of pain uh, sensation um, during the break you also mentioned that when he cried that you wouldn't see tears so then the pediatrician thought okay that now there is something abnormal here up until that point and did you were you guys holding out hope that this was just you know Andrew was just a little bit slow to kind of develop and and he was going to be um, a, a normal little boy at some point or did you all feel as these things were kind of unraveling that this was something that was going to be long term and, and maybe not um, you know the way you all had planned Kenny what do you um, think well you know I, I think we definitely had a deep seated feeling that we were in for something for the long haul here um, you know we did not believe that Andrew was on a normal trajectory at that point. So we were just preparing ourselves, you know, uh, from very early on in his life to do everything that we could to provide him the support that he would need to be able to, to thrive, what, you know, whatever was, was going on with him. But the first step for us was we need a diagnosis. We need to figure out exactly what this is because as i said earlier in in the show you know the the first step of managing your own situation is knowing where you are in space we have no context so we needed a diagnosis we needed to learn about it and we needed to know where we're starting from and then we felt like we could map our way you know forward from there Okay, so you go to the neurologist, and what tests were performed, and at what point? How long did they take before you actually got the diagnosis? So the test um, was performed in the office, I believe, at the time. It was a histamine test. Um, Now, today, there's actually a genetic blood test. Um, But at that time, there was was not. And so... um, what I remember is that they injected uh, something into Andrew's forearm, I believe it was histamine, and also injected that into my forearm. And then we compared the wheel of um, around it to see if they matched, which they did not. So the neurologist felt that uh, his top guess was that Andrew had Riley Day 
and now known as familial dysautonomia. Um, when we got that diagnosis and it was confirmed, we started to read all the literature. And I think that's when the Kleenex came out. You know, mm -hmm. that was like, okay, here's this little kid. He's four years old. And we, the, the literature says that he is going to be gone in six years. So you, in that moment of despair, um, you know, it, it, you, how, how does a parent imagine the death of their child? I mean, it's, it's um, there really kind of are no words for that. But I, I think there's something very strong that you tap into. Uh, I do believe at the base of it, it's, it's a place of love. It's a place of resilience. It's a place of, okay, this is what this literature says now, but how can we move forward and help? What can we do to make sure that this kid has a fighting chance? Um, and, and the journey began. And what was that? What did you decide that journey would be? Because I remember when Ken first told me this story, we were at dinner actually at a vascular conference. And I mean, to hear him talk about going to another conference and set, you know, creating his own sign and trying to track down someone that would be interested in helping to find a cure. Um, I mean, that just blew my mind. So take us on that journey from, hey, we need to do something to actually taking those steps and doing something. Go ahead, Ken. So, so I think, you know, step one was trying to find out, you know, if there was anyone, a, a physician, a pediatrician, a researcher that was working with with kids and and there was an expert uh in in new york that had been following kids with uh riley day familial dysautonomia for some time uh, a pediatrician and uh and so step one was getting andrew to new york to see if we could learn as much as we could from what is already known uh, from people that have been uh, working with other kids that, that have the, the same condition. And that was very, very helpful just to know that you're part of a larger community. As I said, there were only 560 kids in the world that were diagnosed. So just being able to find one other, <laughs> you know, uh, other families, um, other uh, professionals was very, very helpful. Unfortunately, while a lot was known about, a lot more was known about the clinical course of familial dysautonomia, there wasn't much progress being made in terms of the underlying cause uh, and in terms of what we could do about it, if anything, to, to change the trajectory. And that's where, you know, because of my my background, my experience, just calling every single professional I knew 
within pediatrics, every specialty, every person I could think of that we could bring to bear, we created a bit of a think tank amongst professionals, geneticists, pediatricians, surgical specialists, you know, everyone that I could bring together to say, there's a lot we don't know uh, about what's happening here, but how would we go about finding out? And that's what prompted me, Kim, to start putting out notices at pediatric conferences that we were looking for medical genetic researchers. We were looking for people that are willing to work with a dedicated family to try to to crack the code here and try to find a way uh, to help Andrew. And through that search, uh, we landed with uh, uh, that the head of the Department of Biology at Fordham University, Dr. Barish Rubin, uh, who had a personal connection who also had a child with familial dysautonomia. And when we found each other, you know, uh, it that's really where the next stage of the journey began because Dr. Rubin was doing groundbreaking work in a completely different area of medical research. But when he found us and found a dedicated family willing to commit everything to starting to unravel the mystery around this disease, he dropped all of his research and said, wow. if, you can, if you can help raise the money, I'm going to dedicate the rest of my life to finding an answer for you guys. And that's really the journey that we've been on for the last 17 or so years, having established the Laboratory for Familial Dysautonomia Research at Fordham University. We, we have... It actually begins to finding the cure for familial dysautonomia, and we're going to find out how it unfolds next, right here on The Heart of Innovation, so stay with us. Welcome back to The Heart of Innovation. For more on today's topic, go to theheartofinnovation.org. That's theheartofinnovation.org. Once again, here's Emmy Award-winning journalist Kim McNicholas and interventional cardiologist Dr. John Phillips. Welcome back, everybody. We have a lot to cover and very little time left, so I want to get right back into where we were before we went to break. So you guys kind of got in touch with Dr. Rubin, right, from Fordham. And now you've, you're in the process of trying to get genetic testing and also starting a foundation to raise money for the testing and then help ultimately maybe lead to a cure or a way to help these children, right? Yes. So I, I think that's it. And uh, Ann and I, uh, we always tell the story about we started the foundation kind of rubbing our two little nickels together. You know, we had you know no place to start but our own resources you know we literally just started this with about five thousand dollars of our own money and and just started to work with dr rubin on what do we need what do we need to raise in order to start to sort of un unravel the mystery and so we created a foundation the way you do any organization we talked with our friends we talked with other family members of kids with uh, familial dysautonomia, we started building a human network uh, and, and people that were purely dedicated to 
trying to, to find answers. And uh, over the years, uh, you know, Anne's really been running running the foundation beautifully. And we grew from those initial days of a couple thousand dollars to, you know, raising consistently now between two hundred and fifty and three hundred thousand dollars a year to keep the doors of this lab open. I think since the time we started the foundation, you know, we've now raised close to four million dollars uh, to to fund the research uh, in into this uh, illness. And Dr. Rubin has been able to hire and maintain a staff of professional researchers to de dedicate 100% of their time to this. And I'll let Ann talk about the results, but over the last really 10 to 15 years, uh, there have been over a dozen significant breakthroughs from, wow. the, from the finding of the gene itself to understanding the underpinnings of what causes the illness, to starting to repair that that uh, that damage, and putting all of the kids, particularly those that were born in the last five to seven years, on a completely different path. So, Anne, do you want to talk about the major breakthroughs? Um, sure. I think, um, Kim, like you were saying, sort of like these major points along the way, like once you finally get the diagnosis, then this whole world opens up. And once you finally identify the gene, that's like another pivotal point where, okay, the whole world opens up. What does the gene, what, what's this missing piece and how do we plug that hole? Um, I remember the, the very first treatment breakthrough was something called tocotrienol, which is a vitamin, a form of vitamin E. And Andrew was in the hospital. He was 10 at the time. He had been in the hospital for six months. Uh, he was in something called an autonomic crisis, which he would have wave after wave of these crises, high blood pressure, um, high heart rate, like in the 180s, um, blood pressure sometimes 200 over 100, um, uh, intense retching, and really the only thing that would help calm that down is uh, massive doses of Valium. So we were in the hospital. It was probably in the fifth month. We were staying at the Ronald McDonald House, wow. and... Uh, the doctors basically shrugged their shoulders and said, we, we don't know how to get him out of this, this, these constant crises. They just keep coming wave after wave, one day, you know, one, two, three times a day. I have to, can I interrupt real quick? Is he like aware of this? Uh, like neurologically, Andrew's normal, I guess. Is that yes. the right word? Or? Yes. Okay. yes, yes. He's of normal cognitive development. He's of normal, uh, you know, you could talk to him and sit here and talk to him and you'd think nothing. Okay. You know, you know he looks a little skinny, uh, mm -hmm. but you'd, you'd think, okay, yeah. So I remember uh, uh, I had left the hospital for like five minutes just to breathe. And Dr. Rubin called and said, okay, here's what I want you to do. I want you to uh, start giving Andrew tocotrienol. I'm like, what is tocotrienol? What are you talking about? What is this thing? 
And he said, it's very important. It's going to help elevate the protein that he's missing. And it's, it, and, and we, you got to try it. Well, how are we going to get it into him? Now, it did happen that Andrew had a G2. And so we uh, figured out a way to take this little tiny gel to uh, extract it with, with a fine needle, to put it into olive oil, to take a syringe to so get did he, that did he Did he send this to you guys or did you just run to Walgreens and pick this up or what? Like, he where, sent it to us. Oh, he sent it to you. Okay. He sent it because it was an actual uh, compound that he had tested. They, 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 okay. Okay. That he knew had the right amount of the tocotrienol in it. Um, so we did it. And <laughs> Kenny and I, both being analytical people, we kept a log. And we, we rated the number of crises that Andrew had each day. Uh, and we also rated the intensity of those crises. And so for two weeks, we consistently gave him tocotrienol through his G-tube. And we graphed out how many crises he was having and the intensity of these crises. And over the course of two weeks, the number of crises went down, the intensity went down, and within the, at the end of the two weeks, sorry, this gets emotional, he sat up in his bed and he said, hey, I'm hungry. Oh, okay. Wow. So, you know, if there's ever a time where you kind of have witnessed a miracle, like that we were just looking at this, and of course, healthcare being what it was, said, okay, well, he's fine. He can he can leave now. We're like, no, no, let's give him a couple more days, please. Let's make sure this is really sticking. I did ask one of the doctors. I said, do you think that the tocotrienol is what turned Andrew around? And he said, absent any other changes because there were no other changes one can only conclude that it was the tocotrienols three days later andrew was discharged and he came home he ran around our house he touched all the walls like i'm home i'm home i'm home and he said to us that night you know i think i'd like to go out for sushi oh Okay, so my husband and I and our son Andrew and our daughter, who's two years uh, younger than Andrew, all sat around a sushi boat restaurant as the sushis were going, you know, all the different sushi were passing us. And Kenny and I are looking at each other as if we uh, entered a new dimension. What what just happened here? We we were just in the hospital. We spent a half a year in the hospital, and now we're eating sushi together as a family. Wow! Is this the first time? You, I mean, the first time you probably felt hopeful in a long time. I imagine. Yes, and it also it also was very empowering to know that there was something on the shelf in a store that could turn 
helped turn Andrew around. There was something immediate. It was safe. It, it was accessible. And that, those elements, this idea that it is urgent that we help save these kids' lives, we do so quickly, we do so safely, we do so accessibly, those values were in line with the researcher. So we were on the same page there. And so and was so, that, that solution was a solution to manage once they were already in crises? What was the next step in terms of prevention of these crisis situations that could lead to a longer, uh, better quality of life? So the, the TOCO trienols were not just for crises. It okay. actually was addressing the increase of ICAP, which helped, that was the missing protein, which helped to stabilize Andrew's system. And instead of undulating up and down and up and down, it mm -hmm. gave him smaller and smaller bumps along the way. So okay. it was fixing the underlying cause of the condition. And the, the breakthroughs that have come since that point have all been aimed at doing that. At, at what point did you, because Ken, during the break, you had mentioned creating this web of people and just connecting folks and trying to work towards a common cause. At what point did you realize, hey, wait a second, this is kind of bigger than me and us and Andrew, and, and we're really going to potentially make make some changes and, and impact other people's lives? Well, I think a couple things really helped us to, to figure this out. I mean, even even what led us to the tocotrienol and what led Dr. Rubin to the tocotrienol is the families starting to find each other, connect with each other, and start to compare notes. Um, and one of the things that we found when we started to really talk with one another is there always seemed to be certain foods or certain types of foods that made all of the kids feel really, really bad and certain foods that seemed to be safe. And it was starting to gather log data on the dietary habits of the kids that we found you know, we always felt like autonomic crisis was triggered by the neurologic dysfunction. Right. We later found that a very substantial amount of autonomic crisis was being triggered just by what the kids were eating, that the kids were extremely sensitive to tyramine, you know, um, any foods that are aged or fermented or smoked. Hmm you know, would almost immediately cause the kids to go into crisis, you know, four to six hours later. So once the kids and all of the families started to put this data together, you know, we started to learn if we avoided certain foods, the kids were on a much healthier track. And once we added some of the supplementation that we then learned <clears throat> was missing from the genetic research, we were able to give the kids cells the building blocks that they needed to actually produce healthy ICAP protein, which is what was missing uh, in, in terms of the single gene, single uh, protein disorder that they have. And coming up right 
on the Heart of Innovation. Next, we're going to hear next steps for continuing to find breakthroughs in this very rare genetic disorder. So stay with us. Welcome back to the Heart of Innovation. For more on today's topic, go to theheartofinnovation.org. That's theheartofinnovation.org. Once again, here's Emmy Award-winning journalist Kim McNicholas and interventional cardiologist Dr. John Phillips. Welcome back, everybody. So before we went to break, we've kind of narrowed it down, or Dr. Rubin narrowed it down to tocotrino, right? And so ultimately you guys, or he figured out that this type of vitamin E is very prevalent in organic brown rice, which is what it's in sushi rice sometimes, right? Yes, um, I, I think as we were saying, you know, part of uh, developing the family network, and we all started comparing about what the kids were eating. A lot of the kids, you know, seemed to have a strong preference at a young age for sushi, which was unusual in in and of itself. And as we were logging uh, what the kids seemed to do better with in terms of their diet, uh, that that sort of link of a lot of the kids doing well, eating organic brown rice or eating brown rice products or eating sushi is what led Dr. Rubin to start to look at the interaction of diet with symptoms. And that's what sort of led him to the discovery uh, of tocotrienol and a series of other supplements since then, which are just strengthening the ability of the kids to produce the protein that they're missing. Does this ultimately lead to normalization of their autonomic system, or it just changes the baseline function of it? Yeah, stabilization, I would say, is probably more accurate. So as okay. Am describing, you have these wide swings, and now they're like little bumps along the road. Um, and so the kids are much, much, much healthier, much more stable, not going into crisis, not having these wild swings. Uh, and able to to live a much normal life, uh, much more normal life. Andrew had 36 hospitalizations in the first 10 years of his life. Since these breakthroughs, for FD alone, he's had one to two. Wow. And how old is he now? He's 31 years old. And they, and, and they said the life expectancy was what? 10. Wow. Triple, That's a triple thing. So what's next in terms of research and FD now? I think, you know, the, the goal here is we've moved from moved the bar from fatal to life-threatening to manageable. Of course, ultimately, we'd like a cure. We're somewhere between life-threatening and manageable, leaning more toward manageable, um, which is a a huge step from fatal. <laughs> so uh, the goal, of course, is to continue to find these new treatments, to continue to stabilize um, the autonomic system so that these kids can not undulate so much, um, and to really have them lead meaningful productive lives. And I have to ask, who's the funniest slaw? Andrew. Andrew. 
I love that. Thank you so much, Ken and Anne, for joining us and sharing your story. It's incredibly powerful, and I hope it inspires so many more that they do have a choice and that they can make a difference in not only their family's life, their own life, but that of others. And if you want to learn more about the FD Now organization, go to fdnow.org. You've been listening to The Heart of Innovation with Emmy Award-winning journalist Kim McNicholas and interventional cardiologist Dr. John Phillips. Our mission is to help patients live a better quality of life through comprehensive education, real-time support, and high-touch advocacy in partnership with thewaytomyheart.org and take a stand against amputation. Our purpose is to reduce the 1.5 million heart attacks and strokes and nearly 200,000 amputations annually. For more information regarding topics you've heard discussed on today's program, go to theheartofinnovation.org. That's theheartofinnovation.org. The Heart of Innovation is for educational and informational purposes only, and advice and views shared are not a substitute for medical advice from your own supervising physician. Do not act on any information provided in this show without the explicit consent from your own healthcare team. If you think you are having a medical emergency, call your local emergency number or go to the nearest hospital or emergency room. This show is distributed by the Innovators Network. For more information and other great shows and content, visit theinnovators.network. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.